This has been quite a day already, and we're going to explore all kinds of really interesting stories today, just after our next hour begins. So in 60 minutes from right now, you may want to be close to your radio, or if you are listening online or on the Radio Player Canada app, be close to those things. Dr. Michael Arntfield is going to join us. He's a criminologist. That always makes someone interesting to talk to. Do you not find they have great stories? But even better, he's the author of Murder City. And OPP had a news release come out today, and they actually had a news conference today. And they dealt with a murder from 1974 in London, Ontario. So if you like those shows that go into those cold cases. If you like those shows that on this day, this happened, that's kind of what he does in his book, Murder City. Be a great read for you this summer. But OPP have essentially unleashed something called Find My Killer. It's a campaign. And the example that they are using is the Suzanne Miller case. She was murdered in 1974. She had worked at Argyle Mall, disappeared, Her body turned up outside the city of London. Her car was left at Argyle Mall. And there was never really any solid lead to the case other than it was part of a series of murders at that time during the 1960s and 1970s in which some teenagers, in which some women were murdered and they were found outside the city limits. And that's kind of what Dr. Michael Arnfield's book looks into. And so we'll talk with him. We'll talk with him about this particular case. It's now 44 years old. And police are perhaps hoping for new leads, given what we have on social media, how close our worlds have all become. So we'll deal with that in 60 minutes from now. We are also going to be speaking with Dr. Chris Mackey. And we're going to be talking about a meeting that he's going to tonight. But maybe even more importantly, I want to look at the landscape for Dr. Mackey right now. Because he really has done a sensational job as a champion of temporary overdose sites. And he's going to be able to outline for us how things have gone. Because when these temporary overdose sites were launched, we had essentially six months. So now... We're getting to the end of that six-month window, and the question becomes, now what? The really, I guess, up-in-the-air part of this is that when this was launched, we had the liberal government in place, and they were very much for temporary overdose sites. And now we have the PCs in place, and if we think back, I believe Doug Ford was in Sarnia, was he not? when he made a statement about temporary overdose sites, and it seemed to say, "Eh, I don't know how interested we are in that. And if we've seen Premier Ford do one thing since his government has come into office, it is those campaign statements or campaign promises have really come to the forefront. So if there's something that he said on his campaign, he has worked hard to make that happen now that he's in office. So is this another one of those? That's a question that we will ask Dr. Mackey. But even before we get to those two stories, plus an amazing story from the baseball world in London, that's a little later on in the show, we have something brand new from 
a difficult story, one that was talked about a lot on the Craig Needle Show. And anytime something new comes up, we always want to make sure we bring that to you on 980 CFPL. So this is the latest. It deals with a race-related incident in London. In fact, if you're unfamiliar with it, you can go to our website at 980cfpl.ca. took place at a Sobeys in London, and it involves two men. And it involves one, apparently, by the video that we have, not allowing the other to leave. Now, there had been a previous altercation. So the video is is a difficult thing to deal with because even if you check out Twitter, if you go to the 980 CFPL Twitter page right now, Twitter feed, you can actually see a lot of responses to the post of this story. And a lot of people are asking, well, what happened before? Well, we don't know what happened before. Tell us what happened before. And that's something that has not really been stated by anyone who happened to be in the grocery store just yet. What we can do is play you this audio from the video itself. Let's go. He can't make a citizen's arrest. What are you going to solve but then you call the, pol- the police on him. Would you call for me? Yeah, let's go. Don't touch him. Why are you touching him? No. I want to leave. Stop assaulting me. I want to leave. Let's go. Let's go. So, that is the video. Again, it's very difficult to see what is going on, but there is a man with a backpack. He's wearing a hood over his head. Um, a hooded sweatshirt, and there's a guy in a red shirt, and they've had some kind of altercation. The guy in the red shirt is preventing the other man from leaving the store, and it's difficult to know what is going on. So here is the latest in all of this. We have something that we have received from the manager of external communications from Sobeys. And it says, we are all appalled by the behavior of the aggressor in this video. These situations are downright scary for our store teams and customers. What is not apparent in the video is that an employee had already called 911 at the time the video was being captured. And the team is waiting for the police to arrive. Because one of the things that we can talk about in a few minutes is the bystander effect. Because this video seems to be a prime example of the bystander effect. You know the bystander effect? You're less likely to help someone who's being victimized when there are other people around you. Because everybody just kind of looks around saying, well, well, that person could intervene or that, that person could intervene. It's kind of one of those situations where it's not about politeness. It's not about, oh, no, you take the last cookie. No, no, please, you take the last cookie. It's... I don't know if I want to get involved. That person's not getting involved, so maybe I better not get involved. And an awful lot has been written about this. So the video appears to show that. What we're being told now is, no, no, 911 had been called. The manager in charge at that point in the evening was called to the scene quickly, did her best to be present and to remain calm with the two men as the police were on their way to the store. She asked the aggressor to leave the store repeatedly while also very aware that a situation like this can escalate quickly with an agitated individual. After police arrived, the situation was diffused and, as police have reported, the two men left the store in peace. 
We will certainly cooperate fully with police on any further investigation. Our understanding is that no charges have been brought forward at this time by the individual who was targeted. The incident is not reflective of the welcoming store experience we work hard to create for families, communities, and our employees. Sobeys takes a family-based and inclusive approach to everything we do, and that means taking care of each other and the customers who shop with us with respect and integrity. So that is what we received, again, from the manager of external communications with Sobeys. And that becomes the difficult part in this story. You don't have the entire story, but it does appear in the video, and this is what has people rightfully upset, to be perhaps a race-related issue. And there's no place for that. There's, there's no place for that if that is what was playing out. And again, you can see the video at 980cfpl.ca. You can go to globalnews.ca and see the video. It occurred in the north end of London on Tuesday and then was posted to social media. And some of the things you couldn't necessarily hear in the video, a woman off camera is saying, let's go. He can't make a citizen's arrest. The man in the hoodie says, but he can assault me, right? And the woman says, then you can call the police on him. And the man in the hoodie says, will you call for me? And she says, yeah, let's go. And so what we've seen from or what we've received from Sobeys says the manager was was on scene. The manager was doing what they could to defuse the situation. There are other people standing around. And that's kind of where that that bystander aspect comes from. And it's something that, that you can't help but feel. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where there's been a confrontation and you're present, you know, some people, they jump right to it. They will jump in the middle of two people and, you know, a lot of times they're six foot four and they've taken a punch to the face or they're five foot ten and they've taken a punch to the face and they're just, that leadership kicks in and they get in the way. And in this case, they were trying to do it verbally and it, it wasn't necessarily happening, but... As was pointed out, both men left the store, and they left the store peacefully. Have you ever been in a bystander situation? And is there anything that you've been through that can help the rest of us? Because there will probably be a time when all of us are in a situation similar to this, or there has been. And if you find yourself frozen, if you find yourself locked in that bystander effect, how do you break out of it? How do you actually do what needs to be done? Or is it a case where there is no way that you should jump in the middle of two individuals having a confrontation? Let's get your thoughts on this. Let's open up the phones. 519-643-2222. Again, you can see the video if you haven't on our website at 980cfpl.ca. 519-643-2222. I'd be interested to know if you've ever been in this situation. If you've ever had to fight through the bystander effect or you look back at a situation and say, you know what, I, I should have done something different than what I did. 519-643-2222. You can email mike at 980cfpl.ca. You can tweet me at Stubbs980. This is Global News Radio 980CFPL. If you are just joining us, we have received new information regarding the video that has been watched. I think the latest number was a million times. It is a video that comes from Tuesday night in the north end of London at a Sobeys, and it features two men. There was an altercation, and one man appears to call another man an illegal alien. 
There is a man in a black hoodie who is seen trying to leave Sobeys. Another man wearing a red shirt is getting in his way, blocking his path, not letting him out. The challenging thing is we don't know what happened before this. And the statement from Sobeys, again, if you're just joining us, is I'll just take an excerpt from it. What is not apparent in the video is that an employee had already called 911 at the time the video was being captured, and the team is waiting for the police to arrive. The manager in charge at that point in the evening was called to the scene quickly, did her best to be present, and remain calm with the two men as the police were on their way to the store. We see other people in the video, and one of the things that we haven't explored with this just yet is the bystander effect. If you've ever been in a situation where there's been a confrontation. How have you handled it? Is there anything that you can tell the rest of us that would say, here's a what to do, here's a what not to do? Email from Cassidy says, I do not feel you should enter into the middle of any conflict. I do believe you can get involved verbally and diffuse, or sorry, and try to diffuse the situation, try to give the victim an avenue to move or leave or arrive at a safer space than what they are in at the moment, but you are risking too much to step in the way. 519-643-2222. What is the right thing to do? What is the right way to behave when two people are having a conflict in 2018? 519-643-2222. Let's get your thoughts. You can email Mike at 980cfpl.ca. You can tweet me at Stubbs980. Marilyn, how do you feel about this? Well, uh, if it was, um, if I'd been present, I would have intervened. I think you know that, you know, uh, from talking with me over the past few weeks that I'm that type of person that will intervene. And um, a similar thing happened uh, to me about three years ago. And I I parked my car in a garage underneath, and uh, I have to unlock to get into the uh, garage. And um, I noticed a fella standing beside the car beside where I park, and he ducked down. While I parked my car, which was at the end of the garage, I got out and talked about, I don't know what you'd call me, nervy. I went around to him, and he had a blooming, uh, what do you call it, not poker, what do you call them? It was a bar. It was uh, an iron bar. Like a crowbar? Yeah, trying to break into the car. Oh, wow next to, to mine, and he had a knapsack of tools on the ground. And I wasn't scared at all. I said to him, you know, why would a nice-looking guy like you, young and slim, good-looking, well, look similar like you, <laughs> and, uh, you know, you could pass for 25. And uh, this fellow looked about that age, too. So anyways, uh, well, he didn't harm me at all. And Betty came along. It was her car he was breaking into. And the both of us kind of went at him. I never called them names or anything. I just asked him, you know, tried to give him a talk. I said, would your mother be proud of you? I said, uh, doing this. I said, you should go home and think things over and try to make something of yourself. And I give that same speech to these young kids outside of the stores. I'll always give them money. 
but I give that same speech to them, too. Now, I don't know whether I'm right or wrong or what, but that's me. Marilyn, thank you for sharing that story. All right, dear. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 519-643-2222. How do we behave in a situation like this? How should we behave in a situation like this where there is a conflict? Is it up to us to intervene? Is it a case where if you're in a setting like this was, you're in a store, it's up to the store to take care of this? Have you ever been in a situation like this, and and can you help us out? 519-643-2222. Bob, your thoughts on this? Hey, Mike. uh, Yeah, you got to go in and just kind of diffuse the situation. You got to keep calm and collective and uh, and smile a lot. I learned that when I was a younger man back in the 70s, and I worked at the the St. Clair College there in Windsor as, uh, I don't know, we call them doormen, bouncers, security. So seeing all kinds of altercations where people, you know, would drink and get get in tussles. So, you know, you have to approach the situation, kind of diffuse it, and uh, usually it works pretty good. And and that kind of carried over for me in my life when our family uh, got into the uh, to the bar business. We had a in Windsor, we had a bar, and we had a lot. Uh, you know, we had some trouble usually around the pool tables and stuff like that. But uh, you just kind of learn how to, you know, gut feeling how to go in and diffuse a situation. So. You can't pick sides. You go in, <clears throat> like I say, you're kind of trying to get between the, the two parties and, and, and just kind of have it talked out. And I would say like 95% of the time you can, uh, you know, diffuse the situation. And, now, would you say verbally, would you be willing to put a hand on somebody? Uh, well, uh, verbally at first, and there were many times where you had to just, yeah, somebody wasn't cooperating, and, uh, you know, uh, before they made their move on you, you had to make a move on them. So you would, you know, do what you had to do and, uh, you know, walk the person out the door. Put them in a little bit of a hold, you know, the old arm behind the back, twist the wrist thing. Uh, which my friend from uh, martial arts friend taught me a few moves, so they came in handy at, at times. But uh, that's the way you have to handle it, and it's not always going to work, but, uh, you know, uh, when you have, especially when you have people drinking, right, and uh, they're not using their senses properly, or they're not making the right decisions, uh, you got to be ready for that. But uh, I would say you, you can go in most of the time and just diffuse it if you approach the situation properly. Yeah, Bob, thanks for the call. No problem. Have a great day. Five one nine six four three twenty two twenty two. We're exploring the bystander effect, or what we should be compelled to do. And every situation is going to be different. This one, there was shouting from at least one party. Uh, again, the video picks up partway through whatever has happened, and even partway through the altercation that may be taking place at the front of the store. We have an email that has come in from Rick, and Rick says we should intervene, but we don't. Self-preservation kicks in. Weapons are common, and let's face it, anything can be a weapon, a fist, a foot included. It's easy to say you should be involved. It's much different when you are standing there watching something like this unfold. Sometimes you are left marveling at what's playing out in front of you, and that leads to people not doing anything. Rick, thanks for that. 519-643-2222. A bystander effect. Have you ever been someone who has been in a situation where you found yourself as a bystander looking and saying, Well, should I do something? Obviously, somebody needs my help. Somebody is, in a way, being threatened, either verbally, 
If it gets to being physical, well, or should you just step back and call 911? In this situation, Sobeys, the store where this took place, has outlined that they had an employee that called 911. They had a manager on scene that was attempting to defuse the situation, and they were going through what appears to be their protocol to handle something like this. In the case where you aren't in a store like that, is it 911 that we have to do? Is it, is it that avenue that you have to go to? I mean, it is it is a risky situation, as both Cassidy and Rick have outlined, to get involved. Marilyn and Bob both saying, yeah, they've, they've been involved in situations like this where they have become involved. It's a tricky situation. We'll talk more about the bystander effect, uh, hopefully either later on today or certainly we'll attempt to do it tomorrow. We do have to take a break for news right now. Coming up. In our next half hour, we'll speak with Dr. Chris Mackey, and we're going to be looking at temporary overdose sites because the project that's been going on now is coming to the end of its window. So what does that mean? Because it's been what you could refer to as a pretty big success. We'll get details, too. My name is Mike Stubbs. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Interesting story has just come out. And you can see it at globalnews.ca. And it is an automotive study out of the United States, but it will translate here to some extent, depending on how U.S. tariffs work. Now, this again is done by the Center for Automotive Research in the United States. It claims U.S. consumers would see the price of new vehicles rise by $455 to $6,875, depending on the level of tariff or quota, if the vehicle was assembled and if Canada and Mexico were exempted. Uh, Estimates that demand in vehicles would fall by between 490,000 plus to 2 million vehicles, and that that would result... And this is the big number here, even though uh, demand that falls by 493,000 plus, if anything, is a big number. Here's the big number. Resulting in the loss of 82,000 to nearly 750,000 auto auto manufacturing jobs. And this is in the United States. So again, this, this is not Canada, but we do have some residual effect, obviously. 82,000 to 750, this is not what... U.S. President Donald Trump was trying to do, right? No. He wants to bring all of the business within the U.S. borders. Well, wait, wait just a minute. I mean, this is not just some rinky-dink survey. This is coming from the Center for Automotive Research. Check up on them. They put out a lot of good stuff. And if you're talking about job losses that can hit up to 750,000 people, that's something you reverse in a hurry. Isn't it? I mean, a trade war helps nobody. You can do it to try and say, hey, just a second. What are you doing over there? And grab somebody's attention. But a trade war helps nobody. And this is just proof of what could be. This hasn't played out yet, but this is proof of what is being predicted by the Center for Automotive Research as a great big backfire out of the vehicle of U.S. President Donald Trump. U.S. economy would contract by between $6.4 billion and $62 billion 
and used vehicle prices would be affected because people would turn toward used vehicles. Again, it's a study. Is it going to play out to the letter? No. Hard to make predictions with anything. But this is something that has just popped up on the Global News website. You can see it at globalnews.ca or you can find it at 980cfpl.ca. Check that out. In the meantime, what we are going to do is we are going to be in conversation with Dr. Chris Mackey, who has a meeting tonight with the Board of Health, and they're going to be looking at the future of temporary overdose sites. He's actually going to be able to give us some numbers on temporary overdose sites. He's going to be able to give us some of what has happened since they have been created. And I'm, I'm interested to hear whether or not he feels lives have been saved. That's ultimately the hope in all of this. You don't put a temporary overdose site up for fun. You put this up to help individuals who are having some troubles. And you put it up so that those individuals do not kill themselves and perhaps can be helped as time goes on to get away from whatever demons are chasing them. So what do you think? Could we have been responsible for saving lives? We'll talk about that. And then exactly what could the relationship be going forward now that we've seen a change in government? Because I think back to now Premier Doug Ford talking I think he was between Sarnia and London. I'll have to refresh my memory on that. But he was somewhere west of London when he was asked about temporary overdose sites and didn't seem to jump up and say, yes, in favor, let's keep this going, let's take away the word temporary, Uh, let's make sure that, that we have places that are going to work out as, you know, have been called in the past, safe injection sites, whatever, whatever verbiage you want to give to it, whatever you want to call it, it is something that he did not come out and give a resounding piece of support to. And what have we seen when Doug Ford has said something on his campaign trail? He's been very good about this. You know, there were no real secrets. A lot of times someone will get into office and say, yeah, now that we're in office, yeah, it looks a lot harder than we thought it was going to be. Bah. Forget that. We'll do something different, or we'll deal with that later, or we'll deal with that in a different way. He's been pretty close to the letter, at least in my mind, for carrying out what he stated or what he promised. And if he didn't give this a resounding thumbs up, then what? We'll ask Dr. Chris Mackey that. You're listening to Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. We didn't look at the Canadian side because I want to make sure that I've done more research into what would present on the Canadian side. And I haven't seen anything come out that would look at possible repercussions of a rise in tariffs. We just talked about the Center for Automotive Research saying U.S. consumers would see the price of vehicles jump if the tariffs are kept the way that they are. Uh, They would see job loss of 82,000 to nearly 750,000 in the manufacturing sector. So that's, uh, that's not good. That's, that's not helping. It's not helping at all. They would see a contraction of the economy, all those things. Alan, I just wanted to get to his email before we get to Dr. Mackey. Alan says, Canada would see equally devastating job losses, in his opinion. He says, that begs the question, why is Prime Minister Justin Trudeau willing to jeopardize all these auto sector jobs to protect Quebec farmers and help them keep supply-side management? Al says, ill-advised, in my opinion, but a political decision, certainly not an economic one. 
So that could be something that we certainly explore as we head down the road and and deal with the trade war that is on. Call it what it is. It is a trade war, and I've never felt those are good for anybody. We have other things that are happening that you can't call a war unless we call it a war on drugs. And maybe this is one of those battlegrounds. And it does come up with temporary overdose sites. And the idea that the word temporary is still there. And there is a meeting tonight with the Board of Health. And they are going to be looking at temporary overdose sites. This is one of those things that is going to be taking place. Joining us right now to discuss this and the future with the change in government in the province and what that could mean is Dr. Chris Mackey. He is the Chief Medical Officer of Health with the Middlesex London Health Unit. Dr. Mackey, how is Thursday going for you? Thursday's going pretty well, Mike. How about yourself? <laughs> Not too bad. You have a bit of a busier day. If we look ahead to what you expect to unfold tonight, there will be a request. What can you tell us? So we're talking to our Board of Health tonight about what has happened in the temporary overdose prevention site and uh, the next steps for that site as we reach the end of the first six-month uh, provincial approval for the site. Now, if we look even before we get to the elements of tonight's meeting, if you were to encapsulate what you feel has happened over those first six months, what would you point to? You know, the the temporary overdose prevention site where people can use their drugs uh, without risk of prosecution, it has been an an incredible success, really far beyond expectations. We've seen over 4,000 client visits at this point, uh, about 1,500 unique individuals, uh, which is, you know, a huge proportion. Even long-established services aren't able to reach those numbers so quickly. Uh, we've also seen lots and lots of people referred through to addiction services or to mental health counseling or housing or any of the other supports that they really need to get their lives back on track. We're talking with Dr. Chris Mackey, Chief Medical Officer of Health with the Middlesex London Health Unit. Take us back to the beginning and and maybe help us understand the six-month element of this project. Yes. So this temporary version of uh, the supervised injection or supervised consumption facility uh, was really only possible because of the provincial recognition of a public health emergency. What that does uh, is allows the federal government to give the Provincial Minister of Health, the ability to provide temporary approvals for this sort of site, rather than going through the full federal process, which is much longer, when we're just going through just reaching the end of now uh, for the permanent sites that we have planned. So the six months, I mean, London's temporary overdose prevention site was the first in Ontario, uh, which means it will be the first ones coming up for renewal of that, uh, of that six-month period. We opened in February, February 12th, and, uh, you know, slow first day, but the second day, the numbers already uh, went up significantly in terms of people using the facility, and we're now seeing between 50 and 70 people a day. And there will be individuals who say, ah, but this... This still, it still sounds like maybe it's, it's dangerous or it still sounds like this is maybe not the way to do it. What do you say to people who are still detractors of something like this? You know, it really depends. If people are actually interested in outcomes and in improvements, then there's no doubt this sort of facility is a success and it has been 
a roaring success here in London. We have saved lives, people who have overdosed and would have otherwise died in the back alley. Uh, we've, we've also gone beyond, well beyond the purpose of overdose prevention into connecting people with addiction services, as an example. This has really become a significant pipeline for the hardest risk, the highest needs people in our community to get addictions treatment. Um, the other aspect, I mean, it's had a very positive uh, impact on the neighborhood. And, you know, I, I speak with people in that area um, regularly. And, yes, they're seeing some issues come up with the summer weather now and uh, more drug activity in the downtown area. But in terms of people that, you know, there's a restaurant owner, for example, uh, right at the 186 facility. There's a restaurant in the front, front of that building. And she said she's had no problems. And the people using the regional HIV AIDS connection and the temporary overdose prevention site are, are good people that, you know, she's had no issues with. So lots of really positive stories like that. If, on the other hand, what you're interested in is, you know, moralism and judgment and othering and, and you actually don't care if people are dying in the street, then I can see why this facility might not be attractive. Uh, but, again, if you want to see a safer, healthier world, a safer, healthier community here in London, this program really makes a difference. We're talking with Dr. Chris Mackey on London Live. My name is Mike Stubbs. Dr. Mackey is the Chief Medical Officer of Health with the Middlesex London Health Unit. If we are to look at this being extended, continuing, how does that happen? So there are two routes forward here. The provincial program uh, could potentially grant another three- or six-month extension, uh, and that would probably give us enough time to set up a permanent site here in London. We have some hurdles to jump over still to get there. But the other route forward is if we get our federal application approved soon, then we could potentially apply for 186 King to be a um, an interim site under that federal approval. So we'll likely be pursuing both of those options, and that's what we're getting the Board of Health advice on this evening. So that that's part of the, the crux of tonight's meeting. Then do you have to make a request tonight, an official request of any kind? I mean, the Board of Health has been uh, strongly supportive of this work, both the temporary version and, and the permanent version. Uh, of the uh, supervised consumption or supervised injection sites. And, uh, you know, what we're looking for is their uh, guidance and advice. This is a great group. We've got good representation from the City of London, County of Middlesex, uh, people who worked in public sector, people who worked in private sector. I really value the input of the Board of Health. And uh, they'll, they'll be kind of giving us a high level, yes, keep going in this direction, uh, or, you know, think about adjusting in this way or that way. Dr. Mackey, as a final point, we have seen a change in government provincially in Ontario. How do you expect that to come into play? You know, it's an important question. I think it's on many people's minds. We haven't seen any indication that the government will change direction on supervised consumption, supervised injection. Uh, you know, they've made a lot of significant changes since coming into power uh, just uh, a couple of weeks ago. And they haven't indicated a change in direction on this file. We also know, I mean, Christine Elliott, who's the Minister of Health, a very experienced person, a wise person, somebody with a lot of experience as a patient in the healthcare system as well, uh, you know, pretty confident that she will be uh, a reasonable person to work with and, uh, and a good leader for the, the healthcare sector. One of the things we did here during Doug Ford's campaign maybe didn't, 
come out as completely supportive of injection sites. Is that something that you find a concern, given that he has followed through on a lot of other campaign promises or campaign statements? Yeah, no, I, I, I'm not concerned. I mean, on the one hand, I completely understand uh, nobody wants to be seeing people use drugs and using more and more hard drugs, which is what we're seeing in our society right now. So I completely understand the Premier's uh, thoughts and reactions about, you know, providing a place for people to use drugs. Uh, the, the, the fact is, though, this is a Premier who, in his throne speech, talked about how important it was to be treating mental health and addictions and recognizing that addictions are an issue in our society is a huge step. We don't see it, the word addictions or mental health uh, mentioned in a lot of throne speeches. So that was a really important recognition, and it gives me confidence that this is a government that's going to take these problems seriously and make, uh, make good decisions around them. Dr. Mackey, thank you so much for the update, and thank you so much for the information. My pleasure, Mike. Thanks a lot. Dr. Chris Mackey, Chief Medical Officer of Health with the Middlesex London Health Unit. I like that, actually. I... I didn't pay close enough attention to the throne speech, obviously, but the idea that mental health and addictions could go hand in hand with temporary overdose sites. So the idea that, no, the Ford government may not be interested in seeing things like this continue. Well, when you say mental health and addictions is out there as a priority, doesn't take too many layers to look through to see, oh, temporary injection sites. Yeah, they... They deal with mental health issues. They deal with addiction issues. Yeah, we uh, we should look into these. So the request will be made for a um, an extension on the temporary nature of the temporary overdose sites tonight. And Dr. Mackey didn't necessarily see any issue with that, given the relationship with the Board of Health so far. And then we wait to see how this continues. But did you catch it? He did say he believes that they have saved lives. Let's take a break. We'll let you know what's coming up after Jacqueline LaBelle and news. This is London Live on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. If you've lived in London dating back to the 1960s or 1970s, you will remember a series of murders. You will remember women who disappeared and whose bodies were later found outside the city limits. There were teenagers involved in these murders. And a lot of cold cases continue with murders that occurred in that time. And today, OPP launched something called Find My Killer. It's a campaign. It's underway. And in doing so, they detailed something that happened on Monday, September 16th, 1974. A woman named Suzanne Miller, who worked at Argyle Mall, went to work. Her car was parked in the Argyle Mall parking lot. You can picture it. I love how they illustrate it. This was at the far east end of the city of London, kind of like the London city limits, Argyle Mall. And her car stayed in that parking lot. She disappeared. Her body was later found outside the city. And that is one of the murders that, well, the murder in this news conference that they pointed to in the Find My Killer campaign. They're looking for help from the public. Maybe social media can help. How connected we are these days. Well, an individual 
by the name of Dr. Michael Arnfield, who's a criminologist. He is a professor at Western University, wrote a book called Murder City. This is one of the murders that he talked about. It's now been brought back into the public light. We're going to speak with Dr. Michael Arnfield after Jacqueline LaBelle and news. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. There is a pretty phenomenal piece of history that is playing out right now. It's happening at Carnoustie. The Open Championship is being played in Carnoustie, Scotland. And if you have an open slot on your bucket list of a place you want to visit, that's not a bad place to go. Carnoustie actually is a town was plundered by Vikings. So when you hear about the plundering, and when you hear about that happened at Carnoustie, it was raided by the Danes in 1010 AD over and over and over. And all of the Scottish individuals who fought them off just kept doing it and doing it and doing it. Eventually the Danes went away, and then England decided they would invade, and again Scotland had to protect its border along the shores, and Carnoustie was preserved once again. And it's a pretty phenomenal story. It also is the original home of Sir Robert Maul. And you may not know him, but if you are a golf fan, he's a good name to remember. He was called a Sabbath breaker. So if you go back into the history of Carnoustie, a lot of it is contained in church papers. And so you go back into these church papers, and at one point they start talking about these Sabbath breakers right around the 16th century. What are these Sabbath breakers? Well, Sir Robert Maul was one of them. And he used to grab buddies, and they would run around the Berries Bay links, and they would play golf instead of going to church. So that's where they got scolded in the papers. Oh, the Sabbath breakers at it again, chasing around that little white ball all around the fescue. And so Sir, Sir Robert Maul was kind of a feisty guy. Loved to compete. He was what was known as a laird, and a laird was essentially somebody who just owned land in Scotland. So, fancy name for him. And he didn't like to lose. And so, any time that he did lose, he would send his servant, give the servant some money, and he would send his servant into town and send him to a pub, and he'd buy everybody drinks. And that was, I don't know, is that self-punishment? Is that what that was? So here's a couple of gold doubloons or whatever it is that they used back then. Go forth and thither and buy everyone a beverage on me for my having lost this match of golf. And that's what he would do. And it is still thought today that that is why loser buys the drinks even exists in golf. Sir Robert Maul from Carnoustie. And it also is thought that maybe that helped to draw some attention for golf, because you couldn't post on Instagram and say, hey, golf, happening Saturday, Sir Robert's place, come on, bring your gold doubloons. You didn't have that aspect of it. You had people saying, why is it that we keep getting these free drinks? Oh, Sir Robert Mall was golfing again and he lost. Wow. Golf, you say? I'd like to try this thing. It seems to involve a lot of free drinks. Show me the way to Sir Robert Mall's Briar Patch or wherever he was in the thick of the fescue and the Lynx-style course that they still play on today. 
So a little bit of golf history for you and why Carnoustie is such a part of the sport. It is one of the founding spots. We're talking 500 years ago that is pointed to as being one of the first places where golf was played. Pretty amazing. In a moment, we are going to dig into some more history. We are going to dig into some London history. And it's not easy history to deal with because it involves, in this case, one murder as one of a series of murders that took place in the 60s and the 70s. And today, OPP made an announcement, and the idea is hopefully to gather in some information. They've looked through all of the church papers or whatever the equivalent was in the 60s and 70s, knocked on doors, and there are still a number of cold cases. One of those, the case of the death of Suzanne Miller in 1974. One person who knows the case very well is Dr. Michael Arntfield. He is the author of Murder City. He's a criminologist. He's a professor at Western University, and he's our next guest. He comes up after this on London Live on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. You can't imagine the life of a police investigator. We'll have to find a way to speak with one at some point. This is London Live. It is a presentation of Winmar, your restoration specialist. And we're going to look at a very old story. And I hate to call it that, but it it is. It's 44 years old. And it really has never had any kind of closure, any kind of resolution. But the story came up again because today members of the Ontario Provincial Police launched Find My Killer. It is a campaign that they hope will generate information on the brutal murder of Suzanne Miller. Well, it just so happens that this murder was outlined as part of the book Murder City, which was written by Dr. Michael Arntfield. And it just so happens that Dr. Arntfield works at Western University. And it just so happens that Dr. Arntfield has been nice enough to join us to talk about this case and to talk about bringing a case to light 44 years after it happened. Why do they do that? What are they hoping to find? So please, welcome to London Live, Dr. Michael Arnfield. Dr. Arnfield, how are you? I'm good, Mike. How are you? Not too bad. People who have lived in this area for a long, long time, going back into the 70s, will certainly remember the murder case of Suzanne Miller. And it happened in 1974. And a killer has never been found. The case has never been solved. And yet, we did have an announcement, as we said, from the OPP today, outlining a Find My Killer campaign. Can you take us back in time, especially for anybody who was not in this area, who does not know this case, to maybe look at some of the particulars surrounding it? Right. So the short strokes are basically, I, I mean, 1974, this comes on the heels of, of multiple unsolved murders in London uh, with very disturbing circumstances. Uh, cases that frequently involve both the London police and the OPP where victims were either abducted or killed in London and then transported to OPP territory. Very seldom was it the, the opposite, vice versa. So uh, a lot of these cases, killers were dividing and conquering, taking what should have been one case uh, overseen by one police 
department and then turning it into two separate cases, knowing that there'd be some infighting and factionalism. And and that continued for decades afterwards in other cities. But this particular case, Suzanne uh, worked at Argyle Mall. She's last seen going there on uh, September 15th um, and reporting for work there. Uh, her car then, she doesn't come back. Car is not found for another eight days, found abandoned. And then uh, not until October 12th, so nearly a month later, then her body is found uh, east of the city near Thorndale. And uh, the, the twist in this case, if you will, is uh, eight days after that, the funeral is held at the Evans Funeral Home on Hamilton Road, and a suspicious um, mourner shows up. And no one recognizes him. It's a fairly small service, and he and he just signs the registry book, a friend, and then makes a donation of flowers. And he's followed out of there because they wonder what his connection to the case might be and why he's taking an interest in it. And uh, he sort of disappears in the street, and they release a composite drawing, hoping that someone knows this guy by his real name and that he has information on the case and he's never been found and the case has never been solved. When we look at the funeral that happened shortly after the uh, the moment you're talking about, you have a number of, of police officers who attended and they were hoping to find him. Did they ever catch another glimpse of, of this potential suspect? No, and I'm not sure we can call him a suspect. I mean, at the time they said, you know, he was a potential suspect. I mean, now we would more accurately call him a person of interest. So someone who's has a suspected role in the investigation or knowledge of the investigation, but whose precise involvement can't be determined. And no, they never did. They released a composite, and the composite, uh, I see, was just reprinted in, in the in the local media. And, I mean, you can see from the quality of the composite, it could be anybody, quite frankly. It was just a, it was a disheveled man who, who, who smelt of alcohol. But it wasn't just some cra- funeral crash, or this is someone who everyone was satisfied uh, seemed to be genuinely upset and, and know more than he was letting on and certainly didn't want to let anyone know that he was present at the funeral. We're talking with Dr. Michael Ardfield, criminologist, author, professor at Western University. Dr. Ardfield, we're going all the way back to 1974, and now we get something that happens in 2018 that says they're they're interested in this case again. How rare is that? Uh, very rare, insofar that, especially in the London area, with so many unsolved cases, you have to you have to ask why this case. Uh, what is it about this case that all of a sudden has lurched it back into action so many years later? Whereas, I mean, there's other unsolved cases from the London area that, that clearly have markers of, of of a serial killer, and where there's DNA on file, so you, you would think, well, those would be the ones. Uh, the, given what's going on in the U.S. with all these these cold cases and genealogical DNA, these those would be the ones you'd want to sort of earmark. So something has changed in terms of information available to the police, such that it, it is now worth their their time to uh, reinvigorate, uh, to use their terminology, this case, and, and come forward with sort of a public plea. And you can sort of, I mean, just looking at the history of the case, and we have at least one unknown quantity in this in this investigation, which is this mourner, this visitor, who else maybe knew something that who's still out there, and and that's what uh, I think maybe they're banking on, and maybe they already know. We're still going back roughly forty-four years for right. a police service. What sort of evidence 
could come up that would allow them to say, okay, let's spend some time and some resources on this? Well, there was no DNA in this case at the time, so you would have to look at how how else do you obtain evidence in a murder investigation in order to uh, proceed with a prosecution. And uh, in this case, I mean, it's conventional detective work. I mean, you're talking about witness statements. You're talking maybe about a confession or an admission. Uh, There's all sorts of furtive strategies that that can be used in order to, in, in an older case like this, uh, assemble it sort of piecemeal and circumstantially even. I mean, people say, well, the evidence is circumstantial. Well, that's before DNA and forensic science, how most cases were built. And forensic, or sorry, circumstantial evidence is obviously very admissible and very compelling. You just need a lot of it, and it needs to be convincing. So uh, I think, again, there's a strategy in mind here. Uh, but at the same time, you don't want to get your hopes up. I mean, they did this in, in Sarnia with the Karen Coughlin case, and made intermittent anniversary pleas for information, said the case was open, that they were making progress, and then, lo and behold, they announced that, well, people have been spending decades looking for maybe a sex offender or someone known to her, that it was a hit and run, and they were really just sort of leading the public along the whole time. So um, there's, there's two ways to read this. One is that this is a genuine plea, that there's traction on this case again, and that the offender was young enough that he's still alive today, 44 years later, as you mentioned. The other is that this is a publicity stunt. Dr. Michael Artfield with us, criminologist, author, professor at Western University. Dr. Artfield, was there a suggestion at the time that there could have been a connection to Suzanne Miller's death and other cases? I mean, a lot of there's a lot of scattershot theories at the time that's covered at length in my book, Murder City, about this sort of 30-year reign of terror in the London area. Uh, I mean, obviously, given that the transportation of the body was involved, it's a very particular uh, telltale crime scene behavior, and and those are very well tracked, in fact, by criminologists and and the FBI. In fact, there's only a handful of offenders who do that. So the thought is, was among some people, well, maybe because she was driven out in OPP territory, this is one of the same killers who's been doing this with the the young boys who were being murdered in London, the teenage girls who were being murdered in London. But, I mean, a closer look, even then, and the technology they and the resources they had available then confirmed that, no, this, and this is an outlier. This is not something, this is not a crime as heinous as it is connected to any of the other unsolved murders in London and area at the time. And like you say, no DNA evidence. There was no evidence of, of anything sexual at the time. The body being right. moved, does that make it more difficult to solve a case? Well, again, in in this case, you're talking not only about dividing and conquering in terms of jurisdiction, but yes, dividing and conquering in terms of two separate scenes, at least two separate scenes. So, I mean, her car is recovered uh, in London. Uh, she was driving a, a blue Datsun at the time, and then the body's recovered outside of town. So, I mean, was the car the crime scene? Is there then, uh, I mean, she, presumably she was taken from the car or near the car because we know she left work. Is there then a third crime scene somewhere else, maybe the offender's vehicle? And then we have a dump site. So, yeah, that complicates things in terms of forensics. But again, 44 years later, we're not proceeding or investigators are not proceeding on the the basis of forensics necessarily. This is more of of an old-fashioned plea for for eyewitness information or for someone who has compelling information that would be be known only maybe to the killer to come forward and, 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 and play it that way. So something has changed recently to, to trigger this and, and this uh, media scrum that uh, occurred today.
What was it like putting together the information for the book Murder City, which does feature this case? Uh, I mean, exhaustive, obviously, and exhausting. Most of it came from, obviously, uh, primary source um, documents, uh, a deceased detective who worked most of these cases and, and, and left the notes uh, to his son, and uh, his son then turned them over to me, and then commingled those with, obviously, area, area news reports and, and living eyewitnesses who was, I was able to track down my residents who had been spoken to by police or who had inside knowledge of, of these cases, whether they're retired cops or just regular citizens. So, I mean, it came together uh, using a variety of, of research techniques, including oral interviews with sort of living um, relics from that period. So uh, it was... Uh, and what I felt, what was most interesting, and this is one of the few cases in the book where there really is no other surviving, other than if you really want to do a deep dive into old microfiche records, this is really, uh, the book is really one of the only surviving complete records of this case. So uh, I would not be surprised if when this news conference was announced, most uh, area residents had no idea what they were talking about. They don't necessarily know this case as much as they do the you know, the Jensen case or the English case or the Dunleavy case or some of the better known ones. Finally, if you solve a case and, like you pointed out, it's been 44 years and there there's no one to arrest, is that something that uh, that's dealt with in a certain way by police? Is it just to close a case file? Uh, the, the, the ramifications of that, what would they be? That's a great question. Most people are unclear how that, how that goes. That also is covered in the book because that's exactly what happened in the case of Linda Shaw, of course, one of the better-known cold cases in all of Ontario, murdered in 1989, uh, last seen at what's now the en route near Woodstock. Uh, The killer in that case, identified by DNA years later, was already dead. He had taken his own life. So what happens is they close the case, they notify living relatives, and then for statistical purposes, the killer is what we call cleared by other means or cleared otherwise, which means... Uh, they tick a box that gets sent to Statistics Canada saying basically this case is solved, uh, which means it's cleared, but by other means, uh, means that there's no charges because in that case the, the killer is dead. And, and that happens a, a fair bit, more than, more than you'd uh, think, because they don't necessarily in all these cases make a public announcement of who the killer was. In fact, in the Linda Shaw case, we only found out who the killer was because Linda's mother leaked it to the Toronto Star. Before that, the police weren't even going to tell the public the case was solved. Dr. Arnfield, is there still a chance that Murder City could get itself to video in the future? Uh, it's been optioned, and then options have lapsed, then re-optioned. So, I mean, it is, um, I mean, someone has it now, and uh, where it is in development, um, I don't know. It's, I mean, one of my, uh, I mean, what I, I consider a breakthrough criminological text, it's a fictional text, but it's called The Alienist by Caleb Carr, first published in 1992, was optioned immediately, much like Murder City. And I just went to uh, television on TNT, the TNT network, last year. So 1992 to 2017. So I'm not holding my breath, and this is the, the nature of the business, but that's not equally why I wrote the book. But if uh, more people read it and get interested and Something jogs their memory, and and I hope that uh, whoever, whatever kick-started this case again, I would like to think the book maybe played a role. No doubt. Dr. Arnfield, thank you so much for your time today. Anytime, Mike. Thanks. Dr. Michael Arnfield, author of Murder City. You cannot say, London, Ontario, nothing ever happened here. Not an exciting town. Far from it. And this is 
one of the darker undersides of London, Ontario, those murders in the 60s and in the 70s. And we were just talking about one of them, the cold case right now of Suzanne Miller, disappeared in 1974. And aside from an unusual visit from someone who smelled like Southern comfort, that's the way that it's written, smelled like Southern comfort to her wake, signed the registry a friend, there really hasn't been anything that has been known about the case since. And so OPP have actually taken the time to launch something called Find My Killer. Campaign is underway. And if you want more information on that, uh, the best thing to do is... They're, what they're what they're going to do is is profile a video of the Miller case on the OPP YouTube channel, so you can go there. Uh, if you have any information, as always, you're asked to call eight four four six seven seven fifty sixty, or you can email smillertips at opp.ca. That's smillertips at opp.ca. But if you go to the OPP news release portal. Uh, or you certainly go to the OPP YouTube channel, and I'll tweet out the link to the OPP YouTube channel in just a moment. You can find information. News is next with Jacqueline LaBelle. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. This hour, we're going to spend some time talking baseball. Whole bunch of baseball. And in fact, it will end with an opportunity for you to win tickets to go and see the Toronto Blue Jays. London Live. Brought to you by our friends at Winmar, your restoration specialist. And we are going to be looking at something that came up yesterday in a conversation. Challenger Baseball. We were talking with Baseball Canada. And we were talking all about how numbers are doing in the sport. And the participation levels have actually gone up about 15% over the last three years. If you look at youth baseball, and there are all kinds of different initiatives, rally cap baseball where young kids learn the game and they rotate through the positions so that it's not, well, you know what, how about you go and play left field and then the player never really learns much. They learn how to pick up grass and put it into their glove. They learn how to spin around and round and round and get dizzy enough that they fall down. That's always when the balls hit to them. So nothing like that happens. It gets everybody up and active. And there's another element, too. We heard from Adam Morissette from Baseball Canada about Challenger Baseball. Yeah, Challenger Baseball is a, is a program that's actually a partnership between Baseball Canada, Jays Care Foundation, and Little League. And it's a program uh, for kids with special needs designed for for them to play baseball, whether it be uh, on, a, on a regular baseball field. We've got some accessible fields across the country that host Challenger Baseball, and there's over 100 programs across the country where, where Challenger Baseball is played. Um, again, we're very fortunate to, to partner with Jays Care and, uh, and Little League Canada on this. Uh, we just had actually the seventh annual Challenger Baseball Jamboree at Rogers Centre in Toronto, um, uh, earlier this month, and it's it's really a great program. And again, uh, if you visit baseball.ca, um, we have all the information and all the different challenger programs across the country listed. So strongly encourage people to to check that out to see where their closest challenger program is. It's uh, it's a tremendous program that's been that's been going on for quite some time, and it actually gives uh, it gives. 
people who we refer to as buddies the opportunity to help with the game as well. So um, it's it's a program for everyone that everyone gets enjoyment out of, and we're just really, really fortunate to be a part of it. Challenger Baseball is pretty new in London, Ontario. In fact, it's only been going for a year, and it is only going because one man in particular made it happen. That man is going to walk through the door of our studio and sit down and talk about it with us next. You'll meet Sean Lawson. We'll talk about Challenger Baseball in London. And then, before the end of this hour, we are going to give you an opportunity to win Blue Jays tickets, courtesy of our friends at Pack Road Country Meets in Lambeth. There are four seats. They're in Section 229. It'll take a skill-testing question. So start scratching your head about the Toronto Blue Jays. It will definitely be Toronto Blue Jays-themed, and I promise you, it shouldn't be too hard. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Ahead of giving away some Toronto Blue Jays tickets with a tiny skill testing question, let's talk about Challenger Baseball because it's something that has come to London and it gives kids who might not otherwise have a chance to play baseball an opportunity to play the game. And one of the reasons it's here in London, in fact, maybe the only reason that it is here in London, is the man who has joined us in our studios here at Global News Radio, Sean Lawson. Sean, welcome to the studio. Thanks for having me, Mike. Appreciate it. Great to have you here. We ended up talking with Baseball Canada yesterday. One of the things that came up was Challenger Baseball, and we didn't have enough time to really explore the impact that it had in London. You're a guy who has made this happen in London. Now, the journey begins not in London, but actually out east. Take us there to Halifax, Nova Scotia. Well, big uh, Blue Jays fan, so watching a game one night, just see a commercial come up for Challenger Baseball and decided it's something that I'd love to do because I love the sport and just think that it's great to be able to share with as many people as possible. I uh, went out to the program that they had out in Halifax for a couple days as the season was kind of wrapping up. Uh, when we moved back to London a little while later, decided uh, looked into it. There was no league here in London, so decided we had to start one up. So what does it take to do that? Because this involves a lot of kids. Where did it begin? Uh, we started with, well, I knew that the partnership was with Jay's Care, so I reached out to them, and uh, they got back to me very quickly and kind of gave me uh, creative freedom to run a program here in London, uh, gave me a grant to start things up, and then just let me go from there. And uh, it helped that I worked with another hockey league that worked with Challenge Youth here in London uh, called George Bray. That kind of opened me up to those families and then uh, just started the baseball league from there. So. Before the interview, we talked a little bit about what Challenger Baseball is. You have now been immersed in Challenger Baseball. Let's get your description of what it is. So the sport is for physically and cognitively challenged youth. Um, there's really no range of... There, we have children with severe ADD, and we have children with autism playing. We have children in wheelchairs. It's right across the spectrum. So um, it's open to everyone just to try to open their eyes to what the sport of baseball can do. Not so much for learning the skills, but more life skills and meeting friends and, and just giving them something to look forward to each week. So that's what Challenger Baseball has uh, really supplied so far. Now, when you look at the success that comes out of things like that, like you say, not necessarily baseball skill success, life success when you see what these kids are able to do what's it like to watch it is so rewarding um i can't tell you just over the microphone here what it's like uh you have to come out and see it 
uh, to the smiles that are on the kids' face make it worth it. Even if you see one of them every week, it would be worth it uh, to come out and give your time and just be a part of this amazing program because the kids are loving it, which just forces us to love it because you can't do anything but, I'm telling you. We're talking with Sean Lawson. Runs Challenger Baseball in London. Is that the actual name? Challenger Baseball London. Yeah. Okay. Runs Challenger Baseball London. Any one story of any player that just sticks out in your mind that you wind up thinking about just driving around, it just pops into your head? Um, We had a child uh, named Bryson who at the start was very kind of quiet. Um, but as he went on, he has great parents, and he's just been taking the other kids who aren't maybe enjoying themselves, they're having an off day, and he'll just uh, brighten their day up, run them out on the field. Even kids on the opposite team, he's going over and giving them pep talks in between. So each week, each one of these kids brings something different, but I always remember Bryson's smile and the smile he puts on those other kids' faces. That's fantastic. Okay, now, you mentioned the Blue Jays, and the Blue Jays are not just a team that gave a grant to get this started. They stay involved in this. What do the players with Challenger Baseball get to experience Blue Jays-wise? So the Jays Care Foundation has been an integral part of this. Um, they, they've set us up with so many opportunities. Like We got to bring kids down. Um, we sat in a box. They catered food for us for the day. Um, another thing, we just had the National Jamboree down in Toronto. Uh, seven ki- or pardon me, nine kids from our program. I went down and took part in that. That's when they actually got to go down on the field, do a bunch of drills, and then KP came out, uh, Superman himself, Kevin Pillar, and uh, pitched them a few pitches. Uh, and one of my kids uh, sharing a story about hitting it over the wall, even though they were in the outfield. But still for him, it was an amazing experience. And uh, I, I can't say enough great things about the Jays Care Foundation. Uh, they've done so much, and they continue to just give and give and give to these programs. You are only one year in. You get to talk to the parents a little bit because parents are allowing their kids to go into a setting that maybe some of them have never been in before. Tell us kind of what that's like for them. So, yeah, it's definitely a trust thing that where they have to see you and, and, and feel the trust with you with their kids. Uh, but the parents have been awesome, especially at the end, coming up to us and, and just saying what a great job they thought we've done over the year. Um, teaching the kids about baseball, but again, teaching them about life lessons and, and how to love and how to be a friend to other people. So it's, it's been ex- an amazing experience, and the parents have been so, so great as well. I can't say enough good things about them either. All right. Well, if somebody wanted to get involved or learn more about Challenger Baseball London, what can you tell them? Uh, well, we have a website, challengerbaseballlondon.wordpress.com. You can go check out a bunch of information there on registration. Uh, we'll also be having... Um, Uh, get together in September with the kids from this year's program. So if you want to kind of just come out and check that out, that'll be the second last weekend of September. Um, You can get a hold of me, uh, challengerlondon at gmail.com if you want some more information on that. Um, Just come and check out the program and see what we can offer for next year. And then sign-up's going to be happening uh, starting in February of 2019 uh, for the season so that we get our numbers nice and early and uh, figure out who's going to be playing that year. One year in, many more years to come. Sean, congratulations on getting this started. Congratulations on the success so far. And thanks for being here. Thanks a lot for having me, Mike. Really appreciate it. And uh, thanks for having Challenger Baseball in. Sean Lawson here in studio with Challenger Baseball, giving kids who might not otherwise have a chance to play the game an opportunity to do just that and meet Kevin Pillar before he broke his collarbone so that he could throw some pitches to them and You hit one over the wall every once in a while. We are going to take a quick break. When we come back, we are going to give you an opportunity, thanks to some good friends of ours on London Live, 
to win four tickets to go and see the Blue Jays play. Now, here's what you need to know about that. You need to be able to go to the game, and it is for this Saturday against the Baltimore Orioles. Four seats, they are all together, and we'll give you a chance to win those courtesy of Pack Road Country Meets in Lambeth next on London Live on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. If you are a baseball fan, then we've got something special to close out the show today. Pack Road Country Meets in Lambeth has four tickets for Saturday's game to give away to someone who can answer a very, hopefully easy, skill-testing question about the Blue Jays. We're not going to test your memory. We've talked a bit about history. We're not going to go back into history. In fact, we're going to ask a question that goes into the future. If you know the answer and you can go to the game, that should be part of this. Don't win tickets that you can't use. You're just taking them away from somebody else. Then get ready. Phone lines are now officially open. 519-643-2222. That's 519-643-2222. This will be a phone-only contest. And here is the skill-testing question for you. Who is scheduled to start for the Toronto Blue Jays as their pitcher tomorrow night? Who is scheduled to to pitch, be the starting pitcher for the Toronto Blue Jays tomorrow night. 519-643-2222, and we will get a winner in just a moment. Again, you can't email them in. We're doing this phone only, and you have to be able to use those tickets on Saturday. We had a pretty interesting conversation in the 980 CFPL newsroom earlier today, and it's brought up something that I had never really thought of before. We were talking earlier this hour about golf and the history of golf. And so we were looking back in time 500 years ago. Carnoustie, where they're playing the Open Championship, is one of the first places that golf was played. And when it comes to baseball, here's the thing to think about. They created this thing in the 1800s. And whether it was Abner Doubleday or Dubner Abelday or whoever it was that created baseball, if you think about the actual mechanics of the game, so first base, 90 feet away from home plate. Third base, 90 feet away from home plate. If you think about that, that really hasn't changed in the design of the game, even though Players can hit the ball further. Players can hit the ball farther, uh, harder. That element is there. Can you imagine what the sport would be like if that wasn't the case? Like, think about how much that works. If home plate and first base were 100 feet apart, think of how many more outs there would be at first. Or if they were 80 feet apart. That hasn't changed. And yet humans, you would say, have. You're not running in fancy lightweight cleats back in the 1800s, but somehow everything has still matched and the game still works. There's a lot of talk these days about what they're going to do to change baseball because baseball is going to go through some changes, whether it is a pitch clock or whether you know they, they decide to eliminate the shift 
those are certainly things that are being discussed. One of the things that is being talked about again among Major League Baseball people is expansion and where to go. And Dan Schulman, who you hear on Jay's broadcasts on 980 CFPL from time to time, on his latest podcast, which kind of honors the late Tom Cheek swinging a belt, he was talking with Buster Olney. He talked with John Pomerosi, and he was able to get their thoughts on. He talked to Jason Stark, too. So great baseball writers get their thoughts on what might play out over the next while in the sport of baseball. And they did talk largely about expansion and that they would want to grow to 32 teams. And one of the ideas, I think it was Buster Olney that had brought it up, and Buster Olney had said, maybe you go to Montreal and maybe you go to Mexico City as two expansion cities, and then you would turn the division system into eight divisions of four teams or four divisions of eight teams, and you would wind up with a very different look, maybe add some more playoff teams, go to an NFL style, but that's something that was discussed. All right, we have our winner, and that winner joins us now. John, congratulations as long as you can do this. Can you name the scheduled starting pitcher for the Toronto Blue Jays tomorrow night? Yes, Sam Gaviglio. You are absolutely right, and you are off to see the Jays and the Baltimore Orioles on Saturday. Absolutely amazing. Amazing. Well, hang on. We'll get some information from you. Thank you for knowing that. That's great, Mike. Thanks a lot. All the best. Really appreciate it. Take care. That is John. Sam Gaviglio is due to start for the Toronto Blue Jays tomorrow night. Tomorrow on the show, we are going to be talking about the Vegas Golden Knights for a little bit because the director of hockey operations of the Vegas Golden Knights is due to join us. They've had just an absolute whirlwind season. I don't think it's felt like it's stopped yet for them. They went from the Stanley Cup final to the NHL draft to now free agency. And this is an expansion team that did better than any expansion team ever. Doesn't matter what Montreal or Mexico City could do in baseball. Good luck topping what the Vegas Golden Knights did in their first season in the National Hockey League. So we'll talk about that. We still haven't been able to get to autonomous vehicles, and we are going to do that and how they are running through the streets of downtown Detroit and maybe the future of transportation. This is a company that's not looking and saying, we want to dominate every aspect of autonomous transportation. They're looking at how it fits now and saying, okay, we've got a company that has a number of workers in a particular building or a particular set of buildings, and then those workers end up parking a long way away. What if we could get an autonomous vehicle that would allow them to get in and zip over to the parking lot, and that vehicle would just drive itself around, and when it was needed, it would show up, they'd get in, back to the parking lot, and they'd get home a whole lot faster without having to walk a few blocks. That's kind of where it started. And so that's another thing that we will look at. Plus, we will talk about kids' sports and the challenges that exist now that those sports have become very elite, both financially and skill-wise. So that's all ahead tomorrow on London Live. Thanks to Christian Devino, London Live, a presentation of Winmar, your restoration specialist. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL.